0: Perhaps the God will give us a thought, and that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lots fell up on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that the great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Amen.
1: Thanks, Angie. Yeah, and may God add his rich blessing to the reading of his word this morning. We're embarking upon a new series today. I've been uh, anticipating this for quite a while in the book of Jonah. And you probably noticed as Angie was reading, all every time it talked about hurling. So there's a whole lot of hurling going on in Jonah. And uh, next weekend we're going to see a big fish doing some hurling of his own. So you can be ready for that. But uh, I want to start by giving you a pop quiz about Jonah, okay? So we'll go through this real quick. Number one, true or false? The story of Jonah being swallowed by a big fish is a purely fictional account and has no historical basis. What do you think? False. Okay, well, if you're, if you're a believer of the Bible, you'll note that this story is in the Bible. If you believe the Bible is the inerrant, authoritative, infallible word of God, then you've got to say, this is a true account. Jesus actually referred to Jonah uh, as history, and so lining up with Jesus is always a good thing. Amen? Number two. Multiple choice or multiple guess, what have you. Jonah was A, a fisherman, B, a sailor, C, a prophet. He was a prophet, one of God's prophets. He wasn't a sailor. He did do some traveling with some sailors. He wasn't a fisherman. He didn't catch the big fish, but he did get caught by a big fish. But he was a prophet. And number three, true or false, the story of Jonah is extremely relevant for Christians living in the U.S. in the 21st century. Yeah. I mean, we're going to find this out. Maybe you're not thinking along those lines, but God has a lot for us in this story of Jonah. I think we're going to be amazed by the relevance to our lives. I've, been, I've read the book of Jonah many times over the past few weeks, and I've felt convicted at times by it. I've also felt inspired and encouraged in my walk with Christ. And uh, I've been challenged in a new way to join God on his mission in the world, And I pray the same for you. So take your Bibles and turn to the book of Jonah. It's right between Obadiah and Micah, if that helps, which it probably doesn't. Jonah is a narrative. Unlike the letters of Paul that we've studied, like Colossians and 1 Corinthians and Philippians and so forth, those contain a lot of doctrinal teaching and exhortations to holy living. Jonah is a story contains an incredible story that's full of irony and humor and satire and plot twists. But without question, Jonah is a story that teaches. We're going to learn a lot. You say, what are we going to learn? Well, we're going to learn about God. Jonah's story teaches us an awful lot about God, who he is, what he's like. In fact, we typically think of Jonah as the main character in this story, but really the primary actor in the story of Jonah is God himself. He's seen behind the scenes orchestrating events to accomplish his purposes. And so I believe we could say that God himself is the writer, director, producer, and the star of the story of Jonah. We're going to learn about God. We're going to learn about God's heart for the city. His love for urban city dwellers. And we're going to talk a lot about this over the course of the next few weeks. And we're going to be praying for our city as well. God loves the city through his people in the city. And so that's why we go to villages like Makono and Los Anonos. It's why we're partnering with church planters in Pittsburgh and in Las Vegas. And you'll be hearing more about that in upcoming weeks. It's why we seek to love the city that we live in. It's why we go to Stowe Center every month and feed homeless people. It's why neighborhood Bible clubs are going out into the communities and taking the gospel to the Backyards and driveways of our community It's why we're putting the gospel pamphlet on every doorstep in Gehenna, Because we are god's people and god loves the city through his people. We're gonna learn about god's heart for the city Of course, we'll learn about jonah this hebrew prophet who lived in the 700s bc who tried to run away from god We're gonna learn about ourselves In jonah, I think it'd be a mistake to read the story of jonah and not see ourselves in the story We're in there We're going to see that in a few moments. And we're going to learn about Jesus. We're going to learn about Jesus and Jonah. You know, on several occasions, Jesus declared that the Bible was about him. All of the Bible is about him. That The grand storyline of the Bible is his storyline. And so as we read the story of Jonah, we need to ask, where is Jesus in this story? How does Jonah's story point us to the Son of God? We're going to find that out. You know, Jesus himself gave us a clue about that. He actually mentioned Jonah when he was here. Listen to what he said in Matthew twelve thirty-nine. But he, Jesus, answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So here's Jesus referencing Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Speaking of himself. He's saying the Ninevites were better repenters than you guys, the audience he was speaking to. So I believe the story of Jonah ultimately points us to Jesus, as do all the stories of the Old Testament and the Bible. We're going to see how that's true. Now, how many of you are parents here today? You have little ones living in your home with you. Can I see your hands? Or not so little ones, but they're there. You know, 40-year-old children, whatever. I want to encourage you to teach this story to your children. As Brett taught us last week, reading the Bible to our children is so very important. This week, maybe. Maybe today, while it's still fresh in your mind. Have them sit down and read Jonah chapter 1 to them, which which is what we're going to cover today. And if that idea seems intimidating to you, just remember the Lord wants his word to get into the hearts of your children even more than you do. He'll be with you. He'll be with you in that. Well, as I think about the story of Jonah in its entirety, the whole story of Jonah, a couple of prominent themes stand out to me. First, we're going to see the merciful missionary heart of God. And if you haven't yet drawn your... uh, study guide out of your worship folder. Go ahead and take it out. You can follow along with us. There's some white space you can write notes in there. Jonah is about the merciful missionary heart of God. Jonah is not, first and foremost, a story about a man being swallowed by a fish. Now that happened for sure, but that's not the primary theme. The primary theme of Jonah is the merciful missionary heart of God. That message comes leaping off the pages if you have eyes to see it. This book depicts God as a God who is on a mission to rescue and redeem people, both unrighteous bad people and self-righteous good people, both rebellious prodigals and religious Pharisees. Now, does that sound familiar? Do you remember our study of the parable of the lost sons that Jesus told? And the way that that revealed that the heart of the Father is to reach both rebellious prodigals and self-righteous Pharisees, remember that? It's the same God, and it's the same story, really, of a God who is reaching out to rescue and redeem people who are far from him. Some of you fall into those categories, and you need to be rescued by God, and I'm praying that God will use the story of Jonah to reach your heart. Well, it's a story of the merciful missionary heart of a God who is on mission to rescue people. It's also It becomes very evident this is a story about sin and grace. Sin and grace. In other words, it's a gospel story. It reveals how we are all great sinners, but God is a great Savior. How our sin reaches far, but God's grace reaches farther still. In fact, I almost titled this series The Gospel According to Jonah because of that. It's a story of rebellion and rescue of desperation and deliverance. This story, like all the stories of the Bible, is really just a chapter in the larger story of the gospel. And it illustrates gospel truth so beautifully, so beautifully. And the way the author does it is by doing this, by continually contrasting the sinful heart of mankind with the merciful heart of God. For example, in Jonah, we're going to see Jonah running from his enemies while God runs, what, towards his enemies. We're going to see Jonah being on a mission of revenge and retaliation while God is on a mission of rescue. We're going to see Jonah being racially exclusive while God is being racially inclusive. We're going to see Jonah's heart despising sinners while God's heart is merciful towards sinners. What we see in the story of Jonah is a God who is relentlessly pursuing both proud religious fugitives like Jonah and prodigal rebellious pagans like the ship's sailors and like the people of Nineveh. As I said, I, I think we make a big mistake if we read this story and fail to see ourselves in it, particularly for those of us who would claim to be Christians, followers of Jesus, who come to church, who are inside the church we make a mistake if we read this and conclude that we're not like Jonah I think this story is meant to serve as a mirror to reveal and expose our own hearts we should see not only Jonah's self-righteousness but our self-righteousness not only Jonah's racism but our racism not just his arrogance and thinking that he knew better than God but our arrogance as well I think the truth is that we Christians are more like Jonah than we might care to admit. And I've asked God to reveal that in me and in you as we walk through this great story together. So let's dive in together. Here's what we're going to look at briefly today. Chapter one, under four headers. First, God's call to Jonah. Second, Jonah's flight from God. Third, God's pursuit of Jonah with a storm. And fourth, Jonah and the sailors' responses to that storm. So, first, God's call, verse 1. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So, here is the call of God to a man. In the Bible, we see several different kinds of calling, we see God calling people to salvation in Jesus Christ and we see God calling people to service to go on a gospel mission for him God uses a variety of means to call people he'll use an audible voice a vision, a dream, a message from an angel a message from another person we see all of those in the Bible we're not told here what God used in Jonah's case we just know that it was very clear Jonah, I'm calling you I have a message for the Ninevites and I want you to take it and deliver it I think in a room full of people like this, I can confidently say that there are at least some of you whom God is calling and has been calling. For some of you, it's the gospel call to salvation. You've heard the message that your sin is separating you from God and that because of that, judgment is certain. And that if there is no intervention from God, you will die in your sins and spend eternity apart from God. You've heard that message and you've heard the message of God's love for you. That Jesus Christ came as your Savior. He lived the perfect life you could never live and then hung and bled and died on an old rugged cross for your sins like we just sang about a few moments ago. And you've heard the message that he rose from the grave and that he is now relentlessly pursuing sinners with that message of grace. And if you will just turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, he will save you. He's the Savior. Some of you, God is issuing that gospel call to you right now. Why would you not receive it? Why wait? Others of you are believers, you are Christians, and God's call in your life is to serve him, to give your life to serve him. And you know it. You know God's calling you. Every sermon shouts at you that God's calling you. Every song you listen to on your iPod or on the radio, every book you read, every Christian billboard you see, it's God calling you, calling you, calling you. And you have a choice, the same choice that Jonah had. Will I run? Try to run away from God? Or will I accept this call and trust God? Well, we see here what Jonah chose when he was being called. Notice Jonah's flight, From God, verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now I want us to see this. A map's going to come up on the screen. Jonah was in Israel, right? Right there in the center. See that? Where is Nineveh? Well, it's northeast, right? It's actually just a few hundred miles from modern-day Baghdad in Iraq. That's where Nineveh was. And where is Tarshish? Due west. It was in Spain. So God's calling, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh over here. They need to hear this message. And Jonah says, I think I'll go there. 180 degrees opposite from what you're calling me to do. What do you call that? Rebellion, foolishness, no to self. It's never wise to try to run away from God. Like God's not in Tarshish. (laughs) Now the question is why? Why did Jonah run away? What was in his heart that prompted him to basically say, count me out, you know, forget it God, I'm going to do what I want to do. And the answer to that question is very ironic. Get this now. Later in the story, we discover that Jonah did not run because he was afraid of failure. We might think that if we read this chapter disconnected from the rest of the story, but that's not the case. He runs away because he's afraid of success. I say, what do you mean? Well, Jonah hates the Ninevites. He despises the Ninevites they have been enemies of Israel for many many years he despises them and he knows how God is and he's thinking if I go to Nineveh if I preach this message if they turn from their sin and repent God's gonna save them and that's not what he wanted Jonah doesn't like God's plan. His heart is not in alignment with God's heart for the city and for city dwellers. And so he basically says, forget it. Count me out. I'm out of here. Now I want us to notice several things about Jonah's attempt to flee from God. First, his posture. Now don't miss this. The wording here is very important. The author's trying to communicate something to us. When God calls Jonah, he says, arise, arise and go to Nineveh. I got a message for them I want you to deliver. And then here the author very deliberately records Jonah's response. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Now there's a posture here. Do you hear it? Not just a physical posture, but a posture of the heart. You see, to flee from God is to rise up against God. No God... I'm not going where you're calling me. I know better than you. My way is best. I'll go where I want to go. That's a proud, arrogant posture of the heart, isn't it? It's, it's, it's rising up. It's that stiffening of the spine, rising up in defiance against God. I'm going to do it my way. By the way, have you ever felt that rising up in you? I certainly have. You know what I'm talking about. Every time we sin, in thought, word, or deed, this is our posture. That's what sin is. It's first a disposition of our hearts, isn't it? Hey, thanks for your advice, God. Appreciate it. But I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to sleep with my girlfriend if I want to. I'm going to honor my parents when I feel like it. I'll serve you when it's convenient. I'll do it my way. Just like our ancestors, Adam and Eve. Every time we sin, we're rising up in defiance. And it's not just that. Jonah was literally saying, if I were you, God, I wouldn't do it that way. I wouldn't save those nasty people. Instead of letting God be God, this is the cry of self-sovereignty, isn't it? I rule my life. I rule my future. I'm the captain of my fate. And when we rise up like Jonah and say, I know better than you, God. My way is better. We are in that moment claiming that we should be sovereign, not God. We're making ourselves God and we call that idolatry. That was Jonah's posture. And the author wants us to see where that defiant posture leads. People often think it'll lead to freedom. And if I can just get away from God and all of his rules and stuff, then I'll be free. That's what people think. But notice the progression here. Verse 3, He rose to flee. He went down to Joppa. Verse 5, Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. Jonah went down. He'd gone down. He'd laid down. I believe the writer of Jonah intentionally wrote it this way to communicate that fleeing from God always leads down downward it doesn't culminate in the wonderful life of freedom that people think it will man if I can just get away from God then I'll be free no it leads to a downward spiral that leads to bondage and slavery and death you know many people never experience true life and true freedom because they're running from God some of you are running from God maybe not outwardly you're not on a ship somewhere but in your heart you're running from God and I'm asking you why are you running Why are you running? One man said this, if you want to run away from God, there will always be a ship ready to take you to Tarshish. Plenty of vehicles in the dock, prepared and ready to take you there where you think you want to go. But I would say to you, talk to somebody who's been in Tarshish. Talk to somebody who's been there. Is that really where you want to go? Why are you running from God? Maybe it's because you do fear failure. God's calling me to something. I just don't think I can pull it off. I don't think I have what it takes. I'll fail. I'll embarrass myself. People will laugh at me. They'll make fun of me. I'll get downgraded in their eyes. Let me ask are you paralyzed by your fear of failing? Did not the God who called you also, is he not also able to equip you to do what he's called you to do? Or maybe like Jonah, you're afraid of success. God's calling you and you're thinking, if I say yes, if I go with this, my life's going to change. And I don't like change. I'm really happy and content with the status quo. Do you fear success? I need to tell you, there's more real comfort in comforting others than in trying to be comfortable. Can I say that again? There's more real comfort in your life, in being used by God, letting your life be used by God to comfort other people than in spending your life trying to be comfortable. It's true. Don't try to run from God. It's futile. And it leads downward, away from life, away from freedom. Well, that was Jonah's flight from God. Notice God's response. I think it's interesting that God did not say, well, okay then, I guess I'll find somebody else to go to Nineveh and deliver my message. He does that sometimes, but not with Jonah. You see, God was after not only the lost city dwellers of Nineveh, he was also after the misguided heart of his guy, his prophet Jonah. He was after both. And so God sets out, as it were, in hot pursuit of Jonah out on the water notice God's pursuit verse 4 but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up now I notice several things here notice that God pursued Jonah by what? by sending a storm where did the storm come from? It came from God. That's what it says. The Lord hurled a great wind and a mighty tempest. Don't miss this. The storm was from God. God sent the storm. By the way, in so doing, the author of Jonah is intent on letting us know that God is sovereign over all of his creation, that creation serves the Creator, that nature does the bidding of the one who created nature. And so here, God is seen as sovereign over the wind and the waves. Does that sound familiar? Even the wind and the waves obey him. That was said of Jesus. Well, he is God. A little later, he's going to tell a big fish what to do. And unlike Jonah, the big fish is going to obey. Even later in chapter 4, God is going to command a plant to grow up and give Jonah shade. And then he's going to command a worm to come and eat the plant. And then he's going to stir up an east wind. God is sovereign over all things, including nature. People like Jonah who think themselves to be sovereign are sadly mistaken and deceived, right? Only God is sovereign. So God sends a violent storm to rock the ship and to rock its passengers. How many of you know that God knows how to get your attention? How many of you know that (laughs) from experience? I know that from experience god knows the exact level of disruption to send into someone's life to get their attention and to help them realize who's really in charge of their life listen to me some storms are from god and purposeful in their intent not all storms but some storms in your life are from god and so when you encounter a storm a financial storm perhaps a health storm, a family storm, a storm at work, a relationship storm. I believe it's wise to ask, could this be from God? Did God send this storm to call me back to himself? And if that's where you're at today, I mean, that's one reason why we have prayer partners up here at the end of our service time. So if you're going through a storm and you're wondering, what's this about? Is this from God that you could come and be prayed for and prayed with and, and Get discernment from God as to the purpose of why he caused or allowed that storm to enter into your life. The storm was from God. Number two, I believe the storm was an intervention. Now, I think it's natural for us to read this story and see that this storm was sent by God and to say, Well, God's mad. God is angry. He's hopping mad. This is punishment for Jonah. God is angry that his little pipsqueak prophet had the gall to defy him and run away. And God's saying, I'll teach him to run away. Take that. And hurled this storm on him. And I admit it could be read that way. It could be interpreted that way. But as I read this story over and over and over, I realized that's not what it says. The text does not say God is mad. It doesn't say the storm was punishment. The account is very matter of fact. It just basically says God sent the storm. I believe the storm was more like an intervention. And you know what interventions are, right? Maybe you've been involved in an intervention. There's somebody whom you love who's not seeing things accurately and clearly. And so the people in their life come together to impress that truth upon them. I think that's what this was. This is God chasing down one of his guys who does not realize that his idolatrous selfish pride is going to ruin him and hurt others. He's seeking to rescue Jonah from the idolatry of his own self-reliance, self-sovereignty, self-dependence. As Charles Spurgeon once wrote, God never allows his children to sin successfully. I think that's what's happening. And so when you think about it, God sending the storm was an act of what? It was an act of mercy. Think about this. In the end, it will be seen that the sending of the storm was actually an act of God's mercy. Without the storm... The sailors would not come to fear the one true God as they did. Without the storm, Jonah makes it to Tarshish and is affirmed in his thinking that he's in control of his life. Without the storm, the Ninevites don't ever hear of God's holiness and his mercy and they perish in judgment. The storm sent by God tells us that God responds to great sin with great mercy. But when you're in the storm, it doesn't feel like mercy, does it? (laughs) You need eyes to see and ears to hear what God is doing. So God sends a storm, and the waves are kicking up, and not only is the boat in the water, but the water's in the boat, and both the sailors, the pagan sailors, and God's prophet Jonah react to the storm, don't they? And they react in different ways. How do the sailors respond? Well, verse 5 tells us they were afraid. Makes sense. Some of you have been out on a a lake or a sea when the the wind kicked up and the waves are rocking you back and forth, it's a fearful thing. It says they prayed to their gods. Many peoples of that era were um, worshiping multiple gods, multiple deities whom they believed would get angry with them and they would need to do something to appease those gods. It says in verse 5 that they lightened the load in an attempt to save themselves. Think about that. Verse 6, they call upon Jonah to pray. (laughs) This is kind of ironic, isn't it? It's the pagan sailors who call upon God's prophet to pray instead of the other way around. It was the pagan sailors who were concerned about people perishing more than God's man was. I think it's the author's intent to point out here the folly of religious hypocrisy. Verse 7 As I said, they believed that the sudden arrival of a violent storm meant that the gods were angry with them. Somebody was at fault. Somebody needed to be addressed. And so they cast lots, very common in that day. And guess who drew the short straw? Jonah. Here again, God is seen as sovereign over even man-made attempts to discern the truth. Proverbs says the casting of lots belongs to the Lord. So he used that to reveal Jonah Verse 8 says, then they interrogated Jonah. Kind of like 20 questions. Who are you? Where are you from? Who are your people? Where are you going? Verse 9 says, they were exceedingly afraid because they thought God was an angry, cranky, abusive deity who needed to be appeased. And interestingly, Jonah didn't say anything to dissuade them from that view. Sometimes Christians are notorious for misrepresenting God. Verse 13, after Jonah tells them to stop the storm by throwing him overboard, they don't want to do that, and they just row harder, row harder in an attempt to try and save themselves. A little side note here. Trying to save yourself by increasing your effort is doomed to fail. <laughs> it's doomed to fail. Self-salvation projects always fail. Only God can save people. As John Piper said recently, it's Jesus or it's lights out. There are no other options. Self-salvation projects fail. It was so beautiful in this religion panel I was at last week at Gehenna Middle School West that some of you prayed for me. I appreciate it. The Buddhist didn't show up. But the Hindu did. And the Reformed Jewish female rabbi did. And the Islam gal did, who converted from Christianity to Islam after 9-11. Think about that. And me, sitting at a table, 90 or so sixth graders, asking tremendous questions. I've been praying all along. Lord, may Christianity sound and look different and distinct from these other religions. I don't want, them walk, I don't want those sixth graders walking out when this is done thinking, they all sounded the same to me, I'll just pick one. I'm telling you, every other religion in the world is a self-salvation project. They made it very clear. What does your religion do for you? Well, it helps me be a better person. It helps me be nicer to people. It helps me make the world a better place to live. Quote, quote, quote. And I was able to say, well, Christianity tells us that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot lighten the load by pulling God's standards down to our level and think we can that bar. We can't just row harder and harder and harder. It can't be done. We cannot achieve God's standards. That's why we need rescue. That's why we needed a savior. That's who Jesus Christ was. I was able to share. I mean, it's beautiful. It's like, tell us the gospel. I got to share the gospel from about four different angles, that it's not about self-salvation. It's about having a savior who loved us enough to come, live the life we could never live, die on an old rugged cross and shed his blood that's why Christians sing about the blood paid for our sins. And now all who will repent and believe in Jesus can be saved. It's a beautiful message, isn't it? It's a message that stands out. It's distinct from every other religion in the world. You need to know that. Self-salvation projects are doomed to fail. Fail. Well, finally, in verse 14, the sailors call out to the one true God. This is interesting. They called out to the Lord, verse 14. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. Think about that. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So now they're talking not to their pagan deities, but to Jonah's God, the one true God. They're acknowledging he's sovereign over everything. Little did they realize that years later it would please God to send another prophet with supremely innocent blood to give his life so that the world would not perish. They didn't realize it. Unbeknownst to them, their cry was drenched in gospel truth. And they didn't even know it. So the sailors had a reaction to the storm. What about Jonah? What was Jonah's initial reaction? What did he do? He took a nap. He takes a nap. The sailors are scurrying around frantically, and they find Jonah down in the bowels of the ship, sleeping. What are you doing, fella? Get up and pray. We're going to die. What's the matter with you? We could debate whether Jonah was so enveloped by God's love that he could peacefully sleep through a storm, or if he was so overcome with guilt at having run away from God that sleep was the only way to escape the gnawing guilt, or if he didn't really give a rip because he wanted to die anyway. (laughs) We're not told his motives, but later we see after all other options had been exhausted, what did Jonah do? He offered himself up basically as a sacrificial lamb, didn't he? And they said to him, verse 11, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. It's a great word. And he said to them, Well, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And you read that and at first glance you think, Well, Jonah's being a hero here. Just throw me overboard. My death will be your salvation. I am so awesomely willing to sacrifice myself for you. And maybe he was being unselfish, but when I read the rest of this story, it seems to me this could be something quite different. Because in chapter 4, we'll see that Jonah would rather die than see the pagan Ninevites saved. Could it be that here his heart is saying something similar? Just kill me. Just kill me and hopefully that'll appease my angry, cranky God. I would rather die than repent. I really don't think he's being a hero here. I lean that way because we never hear him say, turn the ship back to Joppa turn back, turn around. I need to go back. I need to to receive the call of God. I need to do what God's called called me to do. We don't hear repentance coming out of his lips. Just throw me overboard and everything will be fine. I think Jonah is still angling here to be free from God. In verse 1, he thought he'd find freedom by running away from God. And now here, and in chapter 4, he thinks that dying will free him from having to obey God. That's his heart's reaction. In this story that's so full of irony, it's indeed the sacrifice of Jonah into the deep that will end up being what actually does save the pagan sailors. And so they exhaust all their other options. Finally, they hurl Jonah into the deep, hope for the best. So Jonah goes overboard. God commands the raging storm to cease. Stop! And everything calms down. That's pretty powerful. The mighty tempest gives way to calm And the sailors have a newfound respect for Jonah's God? Yeah, I guess so. And finally, Jonah bobs to the surface after tumbling head over heels down into the ocean depths and he's left there to tread water with seaweed in his hair, wondering what this relentlessly pursuing God has next for him. And that's where we'll leave Jonah for today. Maybe doing some wondering of our own. Will Jonah survive? Will God somehow come to his rescue or has God had enough of Jonah's arrogance? Will Jonah get his way and finally be free from the presence of God? Will the Ninevites ever hear the word of the Lord? Will Jonah finally surrender his whole heart to God? Come back next week and we'll find out in the ongoing saga of the rebellious prophets. As we close... Think about this. Think about this. Seven centuries later, there would come another who would be called by God to bring the message of redemption to his enemies. But instead of rising up against the Father and fleeing God's call, this one, for the joy that was set before him, would endure the cross and its shame so that God's enemies could become God's friends. Like Jonah, this one would spend three days in utter darkness. But unlike Jonah, this true prophet, rescuer, redeemer would rise from the darkness to pursue his enemies with relentless love. This messenger lived the life we could not live. And for his enemies, he died the death that they deserved. And now, as the living Lord, he even today pursues sinners, doesn't he? with a relentless, unrelenting, determined affection. And he pursues both kinds of sinners. Unrighteous pagans like the sailors and self-righteous prophets like Jonah. Rebels and religious people, older brother types and wayward prodigals, immoral people who know they are bad, and moralistic people who think they're good enough for God but aren't. God pursues both. He'll send prophets and even storms to get that message across. You see, Jesus is the new and better Jonah. Where Jonah failed miserably, Jesus came and succeeded. Thank God for Jesus. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Have you let Jesus free you from the idolatry of self-sovereignty? Would you bow with me in prayer? As we seek to respond to the word of the Lord this morning, our prayer partners are going to take their place up at the front. And you can come and be prayed for about anything that's going on in your life these days. Pressures, weights, decisions, conflicts. I hope you'll take advantage of that. I want to ask you a few questions. We're going to, we're going to get to you in a moment, but I want to ask you about some other people first. How many of you know someone and care for someone who you believe is running from God? Can I see your hands? You know someone, you care for someone who's running from God. Okay. Let me ask, are you is your heart in such a state as to be willing to pray that God would send a storm to reach them? Are you there? whatever it takes. God, send a storm. If that's what it's going to take, send a storm to capture their attention and get them turned around. If you know someone like that, if you care for someone like that, I'm going to invite you right now to get out of your seat and come and kneel or stand at these altars and pray for those people. Would you? Pray that God will send a storm. That's hard. You know, that's a whatever it takes kind of prayer. And you have to get your heart in the condition that you can really pray that prayer sincerely. God, my friend, my son or daughter, my parent, my grandparent, my coworker, they're running from you. Pursue them with a storm, God. Maybe you're here today and you're running from God. It's you. And God's using the story of Jonah to call you back to him. You know what? You're never too far away to turn around and come back to God. You can be at the dock in Tarshish, and it's not too late. God is that kind of God. He's a merciful God. Maybe you need to come today and repent. Say, God, I'm coming back to you with my whole heart. I've been running, but I'm coming back. Or maybe have someone pray with you. Or maybe you're in the midst of a storm yourself, and you're trying to figure it out. God's talking to you and you're realizing there's something here I'm supposed to get from this storm. Well, come and be prayed for by one of our prayer partners, okay? Let's respond to the word of the Lord right now. In a few moments, we'll worship together.